Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Historic Preservation Commission hearing for Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. To enable public participation, SFGovTV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live and we will receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take public comment from persons in City Hall first and then open the remote access lines. For those persons participating via WebEx, the password is HPC2023 uh, and you can use the login information on, found on the agenda or the Planning Commission website. Please raise your hand when public comment is called for the item you're interested in speaking to. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, you need to call area code 415-655-0001 and enter access code 2660080-8998 and press pound twice. To comment, you must enter star three to raise your hand. Once you've raised your hand, you will hear a prompt indicating that you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. When you hear that you are unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. Best practices are to call from a quiet location and please mute the volume on your television or computer. For those persons attending in City Hall, please line up on the screen side of the room. Please speak clearly and slowly and if you care to, state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And at this time, I will take roll. Commission President Matsuda. Here. Commission Vice President Nagas Warren. Present. Commissioner Baldoff. Present. Commissioner Campbell. Here. Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Vergara. Here. We do expect Commissioner Wright to be absent today. First on your agenda, Commissioners, is general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the Commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission. Accept agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the Commission for up to three minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioners, general public comment is closed. And we can move on to Department matters, item one, department announcements. Good afternoon, commissioners. Richard Gray, department staff. Just wanted to provide you an update on your <coughs> landmark designation work program. Um, on their last hearing at the land use committee, the board introduced two new landmark or initiated landmarking designation on two new properties, um, the Grand Theater, which is in along Mission Street, as well as the Gregangelo Museum. So our staff will be working through those landmark designations and processing them accordingly. Um, other than that, I have no other additional announcements. Thank you. Thank you. If there are no questions, commissioners, commission matters, item two, consideration of adoption draft minutes for December 6th, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, public comment is closed and your minutes are now before you, commissioners. Motion to approve. Is there a second? Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to adopt your minutes. Commissioner Baldoff. Aye. Commissioner Campbell. 
Yes. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagas-Warren? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero, placing us on item three, Commission comments and questions. Commissioner Nagas-Warren? Um, so I had talked to a member of the public um, who um, has a background in preservation and uh, was interested in um, you know, recent landmark resolutions that talked about uh, replication of historic features or spaces versus rehabilitation. Um, I believe there's um, some language regarding that um, saying that replication is acceptable alternative to rehabilitation and repair. Um, so that was my first question. Sure, happy to address that, um, Commissioner Nagoswaran. Um, so you are likely referring to the landmark designation that the HPC looked at for the Sacred Heart Church. It is fairly, I will say, that is not common language that we use within the landmark designation reports. Um, on many of our landmark designations, we do work closely either with the city attorney and or the sponsor to craft a designation that you know, might be able to accommodate their kind of needs both at the time and in the future, especially if it's within the boundaries and the parameters. I think in the case of Sacred Hearts, the HPC did review the resolution and the nomination and then moved it on to the full board. Right now, the, uh, or excuse me, the land use hearing. Right now, the Board of Supervisors had not calendared that designation um, for the land use hearing. So any members of the public that might be interested in commenting further on the designating ordinance or the actions of the HPC can basically um, forward their comments onto the Board of Supervisors um, and specifically the Land Use Committee for when the item gets calendared. But right now it has not been calendared. Um, that's good to know. Um, and kind of working off of that, um, you know, the interest, uh, you know, that I, I've been seeing is uh, there are very few interior uh, spaces in the city that are landmarked. Um, and um, it, it would be of interest to, you know, make sure that if there's an opportunity and there's integrity within the interiors that they be considered for landmark status. Uh, obviously, we're doing that. We want to kind of, you know, make sure that that is a priority. And then, um, you know, with smaller elements, um, you know, which are as, you know, pertinent to uh, retaining historic integrity, um, one of the things that always comes up is whether to replace windows. Um, and we're seeing a lot more push that people are, you know, seeing the deterioration in historic um, buildings, um, including landmarks, and deciding to replace them in kind, but replacing them instead with aluminum clad windows or vinyl windows. And we want to encourage using um, wood windows as, as they were originally constructed. Um, and in terms of energy efficiency, um, I would refer back to the California Historical Building Code, which um, exempts historic structures that are qualified historic structures from the energy code. Um, and if the owner has a need for more uh, energy efficiency, they could consider an interior storm window or s some other measure um, that does not, um, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, affect the integrity of the historic resource. Um, so, and I appreciate your um, response to those um, questions. Um, uh, I also wanted to ask about the status of, of the SHPO in terms of the state housing density bonus um, and also the um, zoning changes to um, corridors where um, there are uh, planned um, areas of increased housing. Sure, happy to address some of those comments. Um, uh, in terms of my correspondence with our State Historic Preservation Officer, I did reach out upon the HPC's recommendation to talk with um, the SHPO to get, seek guidance on how we would either nominate our local landmarks towards either the California Register or the National Register. I think given the recent state housing laws that have been passed, um, there is a lot of interest in historic designation um, overall by many communities. Um, the SHPO has basically said that they're kind of gathering all the information and then they'll reach back to us out back out back to us in January of next year. So I think given the changes in her staff and a lot of interest in this topic, um, obviously they want to put together a very cogent response towards the many communities in California that are looking and seeking interest in this topic. On the, oh. uh, related to this, um, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, historic resources individually, those listings will help. But I also am um, interested in understanding within areas that are um, either designated historic districts um, or have a collection of historic resources, um, how we can better mitigate the effects of height limitations um, with the housing, um, you know, the density bonus program um, so that, you know, in some cases, um, buildings that have, or the areas that are limited to 40 feet and now can have like 60 foot buildings. So how, how can we discuss with the SHPO or other groups how to, um, you know, either designate those districts on the California Register or understand how collections of buildings mm -hmm. or areas can be better protected. Yeah, I think that's part of what I'm hoping to get out of our conversation with the State Historic Preservation Officer and get, you know, more consistent guidance. That way then we can kind of advise our other staff who are working on the rezoning efforts. Um, relative to your second inquiry, it might be helpful if the HBC receives a presentation on where the rezoning efforts have been, um, and, that, and that way then we can provide for an informational hearing. I know the Planning Commission recently heard from them um, in the last couple of weeks, basically right before they went on break, um, and so we can work with their staff to calendar something for the HBC as well. That would be great. Thank you, Mr. Sucre. Commissioner Brigar? I just had a housekeeping question. I know at our last meeting we approved our meeting schedule for next year, and then subsequently I noticed that one of them is scheduled for Juneteenth. So I don't know if we're going to meet on that day or if that should be canceled. I believe it's now a federal holiday, and yeah. um, I believe last year the city recognized it as well. And so um, as a holiday, we would certainly not meet on that date. Yeah. Um, but... Um, when the time comes, we'll just send out a cancellation notice. Great. Thank you. 
I just had a quick question, Mr. Sequeter, follow up on Commissioner Nagas Warren's comment about the interior structure of a historic property. Um, has it just been a policy or a matter of practice or custom to not really undertake that aspect of uh, a landmark designation or? A lot of our older landmarks are primarily focused on the exterior. Right. So if you look at like our landmarks list from probably like landmark number one through about probably like landmark number like 180, we mainly focus on the exterior and we had I think two um, interior designations. I think, you know, one of the things we're mindful of is that it's not just the exterior of a property that, you know, shows its historical significance. And so for those properties that exhibit, you know, high value or that might be deserving of interior recognition, you know, we are looking at the exterior and interior for kind of future ones. So I will say we don't have a formal policy of adopting it, but given that many of our landmarks benefit um, the public, we do tend to focus on um, public accessible areas or public rights of way or um, things that, you know, an, any member of the public could enjoy when we're looking at landmark status. Yeah, and traditionally particular. it was mainly to focus on the exterior or an or, or, or architect of merit, but I think now, uh, particularly with our emphasis on racial and social equity, we're looking at an individual and the impact of an individual that has had in that community or in that space that we might begin to see yeah. more. Yeah, and I think correct? I think we will. So you know, I think it's something that I've had a lot of discussion with Miss Lavalley on as we look at a lot of the properties um, that we're looking at designations for future. Great, thank so. you. Any other questions or comments from the commission? Seeing none, I think we're ready to move on to the next agenda item. Very good, commissioners. Um, at the time of issuance. I should call the item. Consideration oh. of items proposed for continuance. At the time of issuance, there were no items proposed to be continued, and there still are no items proposed to be continued. So we can move on to your regular calendar for item four, case number 2022-00112 ENV for the Islaus Creek Bridge Project. This is a draft environmental impact report for your review and comment. So, um, if, if I could just say one thing before you start your presentation, for the new commissioners, I think this is the first time that we are going to be reviewing and making comment on an EIR. So it's the, uh, within the right, or w the Historic Preservation Commission um, usually provides certain amount of commentary to the Planning Commission on particular items uh, regarding historic resources. And so, if uh, please feel free to offer any and all advice or comments that we can forward on. Sorry, please proceed. Thank you. Um, could I get the overhead, please? Great, thanks. Um, good afternoon, HPC commissioners. My name is Liz White, Planning Department staff, and I'm making this presentation on behalf of Justin Grevin, Senior Preservation Planner, who's out sick today. Uh, the item before you is review and comment on the draft environmental impact report for the Islaus Creek Bridge project located in the Bayview neighborhood. Pursuant to San Francisco's local procedures for implementing CEQA, we are bringing this draft EAR to you because the project would have a significant impact on a historical resource. The commission members were sent electronic copies of the draft EAR at the end of November. The public review period for the proposed project's draft EIR began on November 30th and will continue until 5 p.m. on January 22nd, 2024. 
The department is requesting your comments on the adequacy of the draft EIR regarding historical resources, specifically the identification of historical resources, the analysis of project impacts on historical resources, the mitigation measures, and the range of preservation alternatives considered. I would like to remind the Commission that preservation alternatives were brought to the HPC on May 17th for your review and comment. The HPC found the alternatives to be adequate, but provided comments on the project scope and mitigation measures. Please note that public comment at this hearing may inform the HPC's comments on the draft EAR, but will not be responded to in the responses to comments document. The hearing for that purpose will be at the Planning Commission on January 11th, 2024. We will provide HPC comments to the Planning Commission prior to the draft EAR hearing on January 11th. I'm joined today by Chelsea Fordham, Principal Environmental Planner and Isleas Creek Bridge EIR case supervisor, and Thomas Reutman, the project manager with Public Works. The project site is located on 3rd Street and spans Isleas Creek in the Bayview neighborhood. Here is a more detailed map showing the location of the bridge spanning over the Isleas Creek channel. The areas adjacent to the project are production, distribution, and repair, and heavy industrial zoning districts. The Zlayas Creek Bridge is a built-up steel double bascule bridge constructed in 1950. A bascule is a type of drawbridge that incorporates a counterweight that makes the drawbridge easy to raise and lower. The current bridge has two light rail transit tracks and four vehicle lanes in addition to two cantilevered sidewalks. The tower, as you see in the upper left photo on this slide, is where the operation of the drawbridge function takes place. The bridge's official name is the Levon Hagop Nishkian Bridge. In 2013, the bridge received a 20 out of 100 rating by the National Bridge Inventory Rating, which is considered poor, and the structure received a score of zero. And now to talk about his history and significance. Uh, the bridge oh, is, excuse me. next slide, sorry. I was going to say, uh, I was just going to say your yeah. presentation is not forwarding. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea, do you mind giving her a hand? Oh, it's not. Oh, oh right. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks. Um, the bridge is individually listed in the California Register under Criterion 3 for its distinctive design qualities as an Art Modern style bridge. The period of significance is 1950, the bridge's date of completion. The bridge retains sufficient integrity to communicate significance as an Art Modern style bridge. And then next slide, please. The bridge's character-defining features include its bridge type, which is bascule, type drawbridge, which uh, drawbridge with two spans and concrete abutments. Next slide, please. The character-defining features also include the above-deck detailing elements on top associated with each bascule leaf. Next slide. Uh, some other character-defining features are located along the bridge abutments. And next slide. And lastly, the bridge tower and its associated features are also character-defining features of the bridge. And now moving on to talk about the proposed project. And then next slide. The project objectives include raising the bridge to address the effects of sea level rise, correcting the bridge's existing seismic deficiencies, minimizing construction times for the bridge to reduce impacts to Bayview Hunters Point residents, 
and increasing the serviceability of the bridge to improve Muni light rail operations, among others. Next slide. Uh, the proposed project will demolish the existing bridge and replace it with a new bridge. The new concrete bridge will be single span. The bottom of the bridge will be approximately 5.2 feet higher than the existing bridge and will accommodate future sea level rise within the city's existing right-of-way constraints. As shown in the bottom drawing, the new bridge will have four girders that will act as dividers to separate light rail trains, vehicles, and pedestrian traffic. The control tower will be demolished down to the concrete abutment to create a public observation platform. And next slide, please. And then here is another view of the proposed project. Next slide. Because the proposed project would demolish most components of the bridge, the impact to the historic bridge will be significant and unavoidable. Mitigation measures to reduce impacts to this historic resource have been identified and include documentation, preparation of a salvage plan and an interpretive plan, and development of a community memorial event. While these mitigation measures will reduce the impacts, the impact after mitigation will still be significant and unavoidable. Because the proposed project will have a significant and unavoidable impact on the historic resource, the draft ER explored two alternatives, a no project alternative and a preservation alternative. As required by CEQA, a no project alternative needs to be explored in the EIR. Under this no project alternative, the bridge would remain in its current condition, and while all the character defining features would remain, it would not meet any of the project objectives that relate to seismic upgrades, addressing sea level rise, and improve muni operations. This alternative would, have, would not have an impact on the bridge and would have no physical environmental impacts. No mitigation measures would be required. The preservation alternative would either salvage and reinstall or replicate in kind most of the character defining features. The drawbridge functionality would not be maintained as the alternative proposes a fixed ban, similar to the proposed project. However, all the above deck elements associated with the bascule brit leaves would be salvaged and reinstalled, or replicated mostly in kind, and guardrails would be replaced mostly in kind with some safety upgrades. The control tower and its associated features would be retained. This alternative would meet uh, would meet most of the project objectives. However, it is projected that the construction timeline would be increased due to the need to salvage and evaluate the feasibility of reinstalling some of the character-defining features. Despite the retention and or replication of many of the character-defining features of the bridge, the alternative still requires removal of the existing operable bascule bridge and the construction of a new fixed span bridge. Like the proposed project, the preservation alternative would still cause material impairment to the bridge and the impact would be significant and unavoidable. A similar suite of mitigation measures as those proposed for the project would be required under this alternative. At the May HPC hearing, the HPC found the alternatives to be adequate and had some questions about the proposed mitigation measures, incorporation of the project within the larger approach to address sea level rise in the Islaeus Creek neighborhood and the outreach process of the project. Based on input from the HPC, no modifications were made to the alternatives, but additional information was added to the draft AR to discuss the larger approach to sea level rise in the neighborhood, along with the general outreach for the project. Environmental review occurs in the early stage early stages of a project's development process and includes outreach to the community on the project's environmental impacts. 
Uh, we want to briefly highlight the outreach that has been conducted as part of the environmental review process. Under the Section 106 consultation, notification was sent to the San Francisco Heritage Society, the San Francisco Historical Society, the Armenian Engineers and Scientists of America, Baby Hunters Point Citizens Advisory Committee, and the California Preservation Foundation. As part of the CEQA public outreach, a notice of availability of an NOP was prepared and distributed in May of 2023 to all property owners and occupants within 300 feet of either bridge approach, as well as being sent to other interested parties and neighborhood organizations. Additionally, a notice was posted on muni buses and light rail vehicles for the duration of the NOP comment period. Tribal notification took place in February. And then on November uh, 29th of this year, the notice of availability of an EIR was issued and sent to property owners and occupants within 300 feet of either bridge approach, interested parties and neighborhood organizations, and individuals who commented on the NOP or expressed interest in receiving project updates. Like the NOP notification process, notices have been placed on muni buses and light rail vehicles. Additional public outreach outside of the environmental review process will be conducted by public works in the coming months regarding construction and detour logistics. Um, before I conclude, I would like to remind everyone that there will be a public hearing before the Planning Commission on the draft EAR on January 11, 2024. Uh, to receive a response, comments on the draft EAR must be submitted verbally in person at the Planning Commission or submitted in writing to me uh, at cpc.isleascreekbridgeproject at sfgov.org. Um, comments must be submitted by 5 p.m. on January 22, 2024. Uh, comments made by members of the public during this hearing will not be responded to in the responses to comments document, uh, which will contain our responses to all relevant comments on the draft DAR. And then, um, as a reminder, this is, an H uh, this is an opportunity for the HPC to comment on the adequacy of the draft DAR, including the description and historical status of the site, the proposed mitigation measures, and range of alternatives presented. Uh, should you wish to submit a comment letter to the Planning Department on the draft DAR, we will address your comments in the responses to comments document. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, with that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on the draft environmental impact report. Good afternoon, commission. Uh, commissioners, my name is Woody Labounty from San Francisco Heritage. Uh, we are gonna send written comments on this. Um, there's only two points I'd like to make to draw to your attention. Uh, one is the tower has always served as uh, a gateway to the Bayview. Um, and whenever there's any sort of project that touches on preservation in that area, I think we need to pay heightened attention to that generally under-recognized and underserved neighborhood in regards to preservation. And I do think that we didn't talk about what the delay would be, but I do think a tower would be a, um, an appropriate mitigation for the preservation alternative. And the other thing is I just want to bring up that I don't recommend this, but uh, many San Franciscans, including myself, used to fish off this bridge. Um, and so when you're doing public outreach and talking about interpretation and cultural um, sort of outreach and, uh, about the history of the bridge, I think to have some sort of uh, outreach to the fishing community and the local uh, people who used to fish off that bridge and even crabs sometimes um, would be appropriate. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. Thank you. Commissioners? Commissioner Foley. Um, I, I think, you know, from the time we last talked and you, and you presented this to us and we actually made a lot of comments, I think you did a great job pulling all this together and I really appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, I also appreciate um, reflection on the sea level rise and providing a little bit more information that this bridge would be inundated by 2075. So raising it up um, is as helpful and it will increase its longevity to 2100, year 2100. Um, so that's very helpful to know. Um, and I'll also listen to the other commissioners' comments. Commissioner Baldov. Yes, thank you. I had a couple of further questions, and I have to say thank you in advance to staff who I talked to yesterday at length about this project, and I am trying to bring myself up to speed on all of the EIR portion of this. Um, so uh, I apologize if I overstep my bounds, but I was hoping that you could summarize the neighborhood comment that you got uh, feedback through all of the outreaches that you described. Uh, Liz White, Planning Department staff. So outreach through the NOP process and then outreach, what we've heard so far, I just want to make sure I understand the question. You had all the different processes that you outlined suggested there was a lot of outreach and I'm trying to understand what feedback you got from all of that different outreach. Yes, so um, as part of the notice of preparation, um, we received several comments from um, organization and individuals and we do have uh, that summarized in the draft ER. I can find you the page, uh, one second. Page one three. Thank you, it's page one three. Page 13. Sorry, 1-3, uh, uh, apologies. Um, and so we did receive um, comments from members of the public about the construction-related transportation impacts um, that will occur uh, as a result of the project. We did receive comments from several agencies, including the Native American Heritage Commission, um, who commented about the effects to tribal cultural resources, uh, the California Geologic Survey about um, addressing uh, geological considerations, uh, and there was also a consideration or a comment from SFPUC about nearby infrastructure, and um, and those those are a summary of the comments received on the notice of preparation. So I, I guess the reason I'm asking that is that, um, like Mr. Labounty said. I look at this bridge, which is the cover on the cover of the draft EIR, as a gateway into uh, one of the neighborhoods that we're supposed to be paying very, very special attention to. And it is, in my experience, a, a signature element. 
Um, and I looked that I believe that the Lefty O'Doul Bridge is actually a city landmark. And so if the Lefty O'Doul Bridge is a landmark, I think that this qualifies in the same way as being worthy of being thought about in those terms. And it was why I was very concerned that there was apparently, and this is where I'm working at a disadvantage because I wasn't here when this first came to the commission, but um, one of the commissioners asked about an alternative um, that in your, it just rejects it. It doesn't, you don't explain why you didn't, uh, why it was not possible to do to create a separate bridge. And I find that sort of cavalier rejection, and it feels cavalier to me, not appropriate in the um, um, creation of, a, of an EIR. Um, I, I recognize the challenges, and, uh, and it seems like there's an economic analysis that underlays um, a, a lot of the decision-making here, but I don't see where the budget that the project sponsor is working against is detailed here. Is that present here? And I just have missed it. Um, Commissioner Chelsea Fordham, Planning Department staff. Uh, economic analysis is sometimes done as part of the statement of overriding considerations when the EIR is adopted. So we will take your comment, and um, if you choose to present it as one of the HPC comments, we would respond in the response to comments. I feel like that's not very respectful of our role as historic preservation commissioners, that you're asking us to say that uh, this is, or passes muster from a historic preservation guidelines, but as I understand, the project sponsor's goals are what you are, um, as staff, working with to get to an acceptable project description. And if you won't tell us, or the sponsor won't tell us what the goals are, i.e. the budget, then how do I know that it, it's not an acceptable alternative to build a new bridge next to the old bridge um, which, by the way, it said it's difficult to acquire land, but the project boundaries have Illinois Street and another street right next to it that are part of the project. So I don't understand the criteria under which you are making your decisions. So, Commissioner Baldoff, respectfully, a lot of your comments are dealing with the project description itself. And what's before you is not an argument over the project and the crafting of the project. Um, what's before you is basically commentary on the entire document. So in this case, it sounds like you'd like the staff to continue providing additional information for public review um, in reference to guidelines that um, we have to follow basically by CEQA and by the board. As they relate to the preservation alternatives. I, yes, I think that the preservation alternatives need to be fleshed out. I, I don't think the preservation alternatives right. meet muster, in my mind, as a preservation right. alternative. Right. Commissioner Baldoff, again, I mean, just to remind you, this 
hearing today is to provide to is to give you the opportunity to provide that input to staff oh, and, and, and to the document itself with your recommendations so again it's it's not really about the project it's about the CEQA document and the preservation alternatives and, and and I guess the other question I would have and so that that's the extent of my comment then is that I would like to see okay. um, a, a more robust preservation alternative and explanations um, for the rejections that have been made of alternatives and the other question I have and I don't know whether this is appropriate again so I apologize if it's not is um, what there's a lot of discussion about um, technical matters and the zero grade that it got on, on, on stuff, but how much is the cultural significance of this bridge something that gets examined in the EIR? So keep in mind, Commissioner, the um, EIR lays out facts. So in this case, the IR identified the building to be a historic resource, and then the staff undertook an analysis based on the fact that it is a historic resource. But, so, but the analysis was, in my mind, a technical and um, artistic, in a way, analysis and not a cultural analysis, and I thought that part of our purview is cultural, and I'm trying to ask, where is the cultural analysis? So, for example, in terms of helping to frame out an argument, you might you might be asking the staff to further elaborate on whether or not the significance of the building's cultural history has been explored in the EIR. Would be something you'd want to say. I, and and so I would like to ask if the cultural significance of this project is being explored in the EIR, and in specific reference to the Bayview neighborhood for which. I think it provides a gateway. Yeah, we can take down that comment and re respond to it. Thank you. Commissioner Nagas Warren. Uh, so the, yeah, the, the alternative, you know, the comment about having the bridge on a different location, um, I was one of the people, if, if the, you know, the one that said that. And I think some of the response was, you know, managing the road elevations towards the bridge. Um, and I don't know if that got included into the um, analysis in the EIR um, to, you know, show that that alternative was considered and that, that there are certain grade issues towards the bridge. Yes, we explore many alternatives in the EIR, and there is, um, it's in the alternatives considered but rejected section, which explored building a new bridge in addition to keeping this bridge, and we did uh, investigate that as part of the EIR, and it's discussed on page uh, 626 of um, the alternatives chapter, and we discussed why um, that was considered but ultimately rejected from further consideration. And so um, on the portion of uh, Commissioner Baldoff's comment regarding economics of it, um, was there, you said that there would be that um, 
that would be addressed when the EIR is certified or and is there an opportunity to understand that aspect of rejection in the EIR? So when the, if the Planning Commission chooses to adopt the EIR, they need to take um, two actions. One is to adopt the uh, overriding considerations, which is required under CEQA, which says we understand this project has significant environmental impacts. However, we are you know, stating that the um, benefits of this project outweigh the, the negative environmental impacts and that is prepared um, with the project sponsor. It's not, you know, it's a separate document. And if one of the considerations of why we're not choosing to adopt the alternative is economics, we have to prepare an economic study to, to back up that fact. And that's um, done as part of the, the statement of overriding consideration and is separate from the CEQA document. The CEQA document pre represents just the facts. Um, and then, so when when the EIR is completed, what what is what is it that decides which alternative is used? When the EI when the draft EIR is prepared, um, it's it's outlined in the CEQA considerations. They need to be you know feasible. They need to meet most of the project objectives, but not all, and they need to achieve. Um, most of the project sponsors' objectives. So we looked extensively at many, many alternatives with the sponsor, and as you see in the analysis, there were some alternatives that were rejected because they don't meet the the sea level rise objectives and some a lot of the site constraints. And that's where, you know, the alternatives considered but rejected looked at all those options. And um, who makes that final decision? Is it the planning commission? It's the planning commission when they choose to adopt the EIR as adequate and complete, and that they feel like that the facts are, are, are complete and correct. I see. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Foley. Yeah, uh, Commissioner Baldoff. I just I, I just want to put some color on this from when we when we had this hearing. I think whatever six months ago, um, but we beat this up pretty bad uh, because of the constraints of the site, and the fact that the bridge is basically a zero, so it's kind of dead. Uh, what I do find very interesting from your comment, though, is the fact that Lefty O'Doul Bridge did get renovated, and this is the gateway, and it's not being. And I respect that, but I think in this particular situation, trying to fix this bridge with all the constraints was almost impossible. I think that's kind of what we came to the conclusion of last, last time. But I, I do appreciate your comments, and I think they make, I, I just appreciate them, and I wish we could do something different. Commissioner Baldoff? Well, thank you. And again, as I say, I'm catching up to speed, and I apologize to make people go over old ground. But I, the rejection on 626, um, I, I, I don't know if I had been asking all of these things. There are a lot of just assertions that are made with not very much explanation. So are you asking? I'm asking for great. I think that's my, my basic um, request of staff is that um, instead of just, I, I'm, the, what strikes me is very interesting in learning the history of this, a, a project was done to 75% construction documents to renovate this bridge a number of years ago. There should be a tremendous amount 
of information that is available to the project sponsor. And that, um, in the preservation alternative, there's all this hedging language about if this is discovered, if that's discovered, and all of that. And yet, a whole project was done to 75% CDs. I find it incredible that, that there is not more clear information. And clear analysis, you and mean? And clear analysis. Okay. So I think that should be part of, is that part of your yeah, That's part of my right? request. Yeah, and my comment. Right, right. <laughs> but but um, I, I think that those are very good points to, to make sure that there is further analysis about the way in which preservation alternatives are discussed, analyzed, and concluded. I think that should be, if that could be a part of the comments from the HPC. I also um, just... Uh, we appreciate your comments, Commissioner Waldorf. It, I think that um, having a new commissioner look at, look at ERRs, particularly this project with fresh eyes, is, is very good for us. But um, I think for those who have been on this commission have really seen a true evolution of what an ERR used to look like when it came before the HBC to what it is today. And in my opinion, I see a thousand percent improvement. When preservation alternatives used to come before us, it was just one or the other. There was no alternative at all. Um, and so I, I do think that this EIR really took the time to do that. I do appreciate the particular part about uh, archeology. span And I thought that was really well, um, discussed and, and very well presented. I do want, uh, I think Mr. Labounty um, mentioned and, and recommended that we include other communities, and I do agree with that. The fishing community is a very important part of the San Francisco community, and it should be included, as well as the Native American community, because you did include a lot of history about um, the fact of who lived in this community before, but it was only for archeology. span It was not a part of any other analysis, and that definitely should be a community that should be included when we talk about um, who may be affected by this particular project. And I think one other thing is, um, about the, the resources, uh, I mean, it, I, I really, really appreciate, this is, I don't know, Mr. Sucre could probably agree to this, I, um, this is one of the very first EIRs that I saw that had very clear bullet points about what would be done, the drawings, the photos, the historical report, I, I really appreciate that. But what I didn't see is the involvement of the HPC included in any kind of interpretive panel, which I think is important, um, and also uh, the salvage plan. Um, if we're going to be talking about a salvage plan, I want to see how we can really utilize and reuse salvage to make it a part of either the interpretive panel or at least allowing um, members of the public to have some type of visual about the historic significance and integrity of the project. I think those were my comments. Uh, Commissioner Baldoff, did you have other comments? No. Okay, anybody, any other commissioners? 
Commissioners, just as a reminder in terms of the next steps on this, um, right. staff will basically input their comments. Mm -hmm. And then as is typical in other projects, we will usually send those comments forward to the HPC president for a review um, and then include it into the record. So, Thank you. Okay, Any other questions or comments about process for the, for the commission when we comment on EIRs? There's nothing further, commissioners. We can move on to item five, but I believe staff will be reaching out to both of the new commissioners for a CEQA 101 opportunity. Item five, case number 2023-009941 DES for the San Francisco Fire Station number 44 at 1298 Gerard Street. This is for your consideration to recommend to the Board of Supervisors landmark designation. Good afternoon, commissioners, Pilar of the Valley Department staff. This is a board-initiated landmark, so we usually give an opportunity to um, supervisors, staff to comment before uh, I make a statement, but um, I believe um, Supervisor Walton, who introduced this, um, is represented by his aide, Natalie G. if she's available. Ms. G, uh, you've been promoted to panelists, so you should be able to unmute yourself. Good afternoon, commissioners. This is Natalie G with uh, Supervisor Walton's office. Thank you so much for hearing this item today. Um, I'm on behalf, of, on behalf of Supervisor Walton uh, to talk about our support for fire station number 44 located in the Visitation Valley neighborhood at 1298 Gerard Street. It was built in 1913 by renowned architect John Reed. Although the building was constructed in 1913, SF Fire Department didn't move in until 1915 as they waited for a delivery of a modern engine-driven um, apparatus and phased out horses for fire rescue. Today, Station 44 is the oldest firehouse that is still active in service. Um, in partnership with the Visitation Valley History Project, the community worked on identifying pre preservation projects to address the neighborhood's underrepresentation in the city's official inventory of historical buildings. Um, Viz Valley only has one designated city landmark that we passed last year, um, and it was identified through a month-long campaign um, as the neighborhood's first city landmark. Uh, residents and community members also identified Station 44 as one of the buildings that they want to see designated as a city landmark. Um, thank you so much. I do look forward, and I hope you all consider this as a positive recommendation. Thank you. Good afternoon again, Commissioners, Pilar Valley Department staff. Um, as you've heard, uh, can I have the slides, please? Thank you. Uh, the item before you is consideration of recommendation of landmark designation, of, but was initiated by the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco Fire Station Number 44 in the Visitation Valley neighborhood. Fire Station 44, designed by John Reed Jr. during his tenure as city architect, was constructed in 1913. Uh, constructed during a period of growth for San Francisco Fire Department in the 1910s, along with the elaborate auxiliary water supply system and at least 25 other fire stations, Fire Station Number 44 is historically significant for its association with the city's expanded system of fire protection in the early 20th century. 
Fire Station 44 is also architecturally significant as it embodies the distinctive characteristics of an early, early 20th century classical revival style brick fire station. And it is also representative of the work of architect of merit, John Reed Jr. As a member of the Board of Consulting Architects from 1912 to 1918, and then as city architect from 1918 to 1930, Reed designed and oversaw construction of some of San Francisco's most important civic buildings, including a number that are, have been recognized previously as city landmarks. Apparently my slides have gone away. Uh, so no. the department believes that the fire station 44 meets eligibility requirements and that landmark status is warranted. Character defining features representative of the significance have been included in the draft ordinance in your packets. The department recommends that the commission approve the recommendation for landmark designation, which will be forwarded to the board of supervisors. This concludes my presentation and I'm happy to answer any questions. Also a representative from the San Francisco fire department is here as well for comment. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm Assistant Deputy Chief Mike Mullen, uh, support services, so in charge of facilities. Uh, the station is a beautiful, striking, I don't think the pictures even do it justice, but uh, it's an important city landmark and uh, very important to the department's uh, history as well. So we fully support uh, this historic designation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who would like to address the commission on this item? Good afternoon, commissioners. Woody Labounty from San Francisco Heritage. In 2021, San Francisco Heritage, as part of its Heritage in the Neighborhoods program, teamed up with the Visitation Valley History Project to identify potential landmark candidates in Visitation Valley, a neighborhood which up until that point had no city designated landmarks. Uh, Station 44 was one of three candidates we put forward in a public vote to get input and hear the voices of residents and community members. Uh, ultimately, St. James Presbyterian Church won that public vote and was initiated and eventually endorsed by this body and the city to become city landmark number 308. But then I want to offer great thanks to Supervisor Walton and his staff, Natalie G in particular, for not stopping with St. James, but bringing forward this great building on Girard and Wildy. Um, the, the fire department uh, staff there was very excited about the possibility of being a city landmark and offered to have a celebratory barbecue if that happened, which I think you're all invited to. We'll be there. <laughs> this is the sort of awareness building and action that we envisioned for our Heritage in the Neighborhoods project, and we couldn't be happier with the fire department, with Supervisor Walton, and planning staff to bring it forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Last call for public comment on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Great. Thank you. Commissioner Foley? I like barbecue. Me too. <laughs> No, this is great. Actually, I drove out. I think it's I think it's a really great building, and I know a lot of the fire team and, and you all are awesome. So this is just a really great thing to do today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Com 
Any other commissioner? Uh, commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, I was curious um, if the interiors were considered historical. Um, I, uh, the limited photos that I saw they were very planar walls and things like that, but one thing I caught my eye was the herringbone brick pattern at the first floor. Department staff, uh, Pilar Valley Department staff, yes. Um, for the most part, the interiors were not, con um, they were examined, but they were not considered historic. Um, there's been several substantial um, renovations made to the building, um, including the addition um, that was added in the early to mid-90s, um, in which time a lot of the interiors were um, uh, remodeled extensively, including like moving spaces around. Um, so uh, really the only, I would agree that the, the primary feature would be that herringbone pattern floor in the single apparatus bay. Um, and we didn't include it as a character defining feature principally because it, um, although this is a public building, whether or not that's considered really a historically access, publicly accessible space, which is um, one of the requirements of the planning code when we think about interior spaces, is whether it's historically been a publicly accessible space. Um, but if that is something that you would like to recommend, we can certainly um, amend the ordinance accordingly. I would like to rec recommend that um, because it is unique um, and um, part of the character of that um, building and it correlates to the exterior brickwork. Thank you, Commissioner Baldoff. Yeah, I, I also am very excited about this and I had a quick question because um, I love that this is actually a functioning fire station and I'm curious if the department's long-term plan is to keep it as such because I know we're always modernizing facilities and um, I, I, and I'm gonna go knit the food comments and the brick comment together um, in that one of the amazing cultural things about fire departments is food and um, the, um, the kitchens in these firehouses and I don't know where the kitchen in this firehouse is but I was in some of the old ones before they were sold off and it was downstairs in a basement and it, but, but as a cultural expression of the fire department and its outreach to its community, these kitchens are actually an important part of the history of these buildings. And so I guess I'd be interested in the department's long-term plan and if the kitchen is still the original, which I don't know, but if it was, I certainly would think that we would want that to be a landmark. Pilar the Valley Department staff. Um, I agree with your comments that the kitchen and a lot of the gathering spaces in these, um, in these fire station buildings are certainly important um, spaces. The kitchen in this building in particular is actually within the 1990s addition. Um, to the building, um, which would be outside of the period of significance for this designation. So we would not have, we would not, we did not include it as a character defining feature. 
because the action, and also just to be more specific, the addition along the north is not included as character defining um, within this designation or proposed designation. Thank you. Can I ask a follow-up sure. on that? So if the fire department needed to modernize this facility again, what we're doing here today would allow them to tear that 1990 building down and build mm -hmm. a, a larger, I mean, a, a more modern facility? Department, Pilar Valley Planning Department staff. Yes, it would, um, but it would require a certificate of appropriateness um, and environmental review pursuant to CEQA because the, the designated, um, the designation does cover the entirety of the parcel, um, but it doesn't identify, it specifically excludes as character defining those features from the 1990s edition. Thank you. Any other questions or comments from the commission? Is there a motion to, uh, uh, Commissioner Campbell? I just wanted to quickly comment that I, um, in learning about the, the station, I, I couldn't help but feel um, really inspired because I know it was a time after the earthquake and the city was rebuilding and expanding and I couldn't help but draw parallels to sort of where it feels a little like we are right now um, in San Francisco. Um, so I, it, it filled me with hope and I think it's a, it's a wonderful recommendation, especially in an underrepresented district. So great to see. Motion to recommend. Is there a second? I'll second. second. There's nothing further, Commission. Sorry, excuse. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, um, Pilar La Valley Department staff. Uh, just to clarify in your motion, are you um, also moving to amend the ordinance um, as proposed to include the herringbone pattern flooring um, as a character-defining feature? Yes. Is there a second on that? Or I'll second that. Second or amenable. Very good. Uh, with that, then there is a motion that has been seconded to adopt a resolution recommending landmark designation um, as drafted and amended to include the herringbone pattern flooring. On that motion, Commissioner Baldoff. Aye. Commissioner Campbell. Yes. Commissioner Vergara. Yes. Commissioner Foley. Aye. Commissioner Nuggets Warren. Yes. And Commission President Matsuda. Yes. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. Placing us on item six for case number 2023-018130, excuse me, 813-OTH for the enforcement penalty guidelines. This is for your consideration to adopt. All right, good afternoon. Commissioners, Corey Teague, Zoning Administrator, Planning Departments. Good to see you this afternoon. Joined again today by Kelly Wong, our Code Enforcement Manager. Uh, we were here two weeks ago with this proposal originally. Um, it was continued today just for further consideration, I think, for more commissioners to be here. Um, the commission didn't request any additional kind of information or documentation from staff, but we are here and available. And just um, as an FYI, we did pass out um, a hard copy of the presentation on like the code enforcement process in general from earlier this year when we were here before you, um, as well as um, it was pointed out at the last hearing that the specific recommendations on the uh, 12 factors for the ZA to consider when assessing penalty. We only had 11, we left one out, so I wanted to just give all 12 of those in front of you. So those are the two handouts that are there. 
Um, just one quick reminder is that you know the this ordinance required action from the HPC in the manner that's before you, and also similar action from the Planning Commission. Planning Commission took that action on November 30th. They've adopted their resolution and, and their factors for consideration, and now this is again before you um, as the HPC. Again, there was no request for additional kind of information or presentation, so I'm not gonna go over everything we went over last time, but we are definitely here and available to clarify anything or answer any questions that you may have. Commissioners, as this is the second time you're hearing this, uh, should we limit public comment to one minute? Sure. Very good then, very good commissioners, uh, uh, not commissioners, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Uh, as just stated, this is the second time this is being heard and the second time we're receiving public comment. Do the chair each receive one minute? One minute. So I, 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 that's why I sent you all those emails. So I apologize for that, but I don't apologize for that. So I, my point is this. I think that it can't hurt to make the, the, these definitions more stringent. I don't know if you had a chance to see the email that I sent this morning around 10 o'clock. I'll put it on the overhead. You're getting copies of it front and back. Um, I annotated it because it's a little unclear. But those values on there pass muster and I just think that when you look at the back of this this photo the, this handout that does not seem reasonable so I'm asking that you consider different values as I suggested in one of my earlier emails 32 percent 42 percent 32 percent 32 percent across the board I think that's reasonable I think it's an incentive I think it better does what you, what the, the legislation is intended to do, which is to stop people from doing something that they shouldn't. And I think that the alteration on the facades is fine, but it's not necessarily enough to do Thank what you, you want to do. And I'll stop now. Thank you for the minute and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Last call for public comment on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, public comment is closed. This matter is now before you, commissioners. Mr. Teague, I just had a question about um, any comments uh, from the Planning Commission uh, or new comments or additions that maybe could inform our commission. Sure. Um, nothing specific from the Planning Commission since they've they haven't taken any additional had any additional conversations or actions since November thirtieth. Mm -hmm. um, I would say one point to uh, to address Ms. Shittish's point um, is that the ordinance creates two separate thresholds for a preservation violation to be into eligibility for this higher penalty. Mm -hmm. One is demolition, which is a higher bar. Right, you have to do more work theoretically, do, do more removal to cross that definitional threshold, but the other is significant alteration or damage, which kind of by definition is a lower threshold. Mm -hmm. And if you meet either one, you're in, you're in the penalty box, so to speak. Right. So um, that's why we talked at the last hearing a little bit about for non-Article 10 and 11 resources that are qualified for this penalty, um, we proposed for demolition using the 
proposed uh, the existing definition of de facto demolition in Section 317 because we don't have anything else, and you know it was unclear what kind of analysis would be needed to really come up with a, a whole new set of criteria for that definition. But also, under the definition that was proposed for uh, significant alteration or damage, most resources in that category, if you remove the entire front facade, you're going to qualify for um, significant alteration or damage. So those that type of work, at least a, a big chunk of it, is going to be captured through that bucket as well. So I don't want to, I completely understand the comment. And we, we discussed, like, in the future, when there's more time passed and we see how this works, there may be an appetite to go in and be a little more purposeful with those numbers and that definition. But for now, kind of this dual threshold situation should capture um, a lot of those scopes of work that are, you know, we think are very problematic. So I just wanted to kind of make that make that point. I think we still feel comfortable with that recommendation that we provided at last hearing. The intent of the ordinance. Correct. Thank you. Any other questions or comments from the commission? Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, I don't recall. I, I think it's in the demolition definition. There's a second on um, on one uh, B. Um, it says, as all external walls, two times, all, in, in, and then the second time should all be eliminated. It's just a small wording. I think you're, so you're saying in 1B, basically all is used twice. The second all should probably, is a, is a typo. That's in the code. Yeah. That's the oh, I see. Oh. This, that's taken directly from the code. I think there may be a typo in the code. I don't know if the all is needed in that second yeah, space. Yeah, it, it made it a little confusing. I didn't understand. Fair, yeah. yeah, fair enough. Can I, can I um, sure, yeah, and we got clarification. From this one. And Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just want to clarify. Kelly Wong, uh, Code Enforcement Manager, this is actually in the code, and it distinguishes itself from B and C because B is external, like functions as a, an external wall, and C is it functions as either an external or internal wall, and that means if you create an enclosure around the external wall, that wall now becomes an internal wall. Mm -hmm. So there's That's a differentiation between the okay. two. Thank you. Thank you. Did you have other questions? Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Baldoff? Yeah, um, I really appreciate this. Commissioner Baldoff, could you? I appreciate this handout, and um, I'm struck by the small percentage of the complaints that are historic, if I'm understanding that pie chart correctly. And I'm interested in the distribution map that you have and whether you could comment on the distribution of the historic complaints. I think we don't have that information kind of readily available. We don't have just the preservation violations mapped out at this point in terms of the distribution um, other than the pie chart. But you're asking, like, take the pie chart and extrapolate that by geography and where the complaints actually happen across the city? Yes, and, and I, I, it's not going to stop me from voting on this today, but I, it would be actually 
I, I would love to get that information mm -hmm. okay. if that's something that you can generate. And it leads me to my one comment. Um, and I think in my conversations with someone on, on this, uh, because I was concerned about fines of people and the ability of people in certain neighborhoods to be able to pay fines as a cost of doing business and fines being um, crippling to people who are less able and in other neighborhoods. And I, it was said to me, and I just don't know if it needs to be codified in these this criteria, that the presence of the or the location in certain neighborhoods like the ones that are priority neighborhoods um, could automatically be thought of as being in a different uh, that there were, could be a kind of economic leniency that would be uh, allowed in those neighborhoods and by recognizing that as a fact it might give you cover for doing having that leniency i mean i and i'm just i'm i'm just concerned that we have such economic disparity in this city that you may need and i fully support that you need this baseball bat for parts of San Francisco, but I'm not sure it's the right tool in other parts of San Francisco. Sure, and we, we thought about things along those lines as well. I think the two the challenges we had with that are um, one, like no neighborhood is a monolith, right? It's There's a lot of diversity, <clears throat> and a lot of times these projects are the result of people newly purchasing property um, and then proposing to expand the building. So just because it property exists in a neighborhood that maybe is not well resourced doesn't mean the owner isn't very well resourced um, and so that's why we didn't feel like specific kind of geography distribution um, and taking that automatically into account was something we wanted to recommend but the flip side of that is the factors that are proposed are explicit that they are not intended to be the only factors right this the zoning administrator is still empowered to consider all other contextual and related factors when making this decision. Mm -hmm. It's just that these specific ones are the ones that HPC are saying, this is how you should consider putting your you know, thumb on the scale in, in, in these scenarios. So we definitely will have the opportunity to take in every factor for a case into consideration. If a property owner you know, makes the case that, you know, that they are you know, not in a financial situation to really be able to address this and that this was, you know, not intentional and all these other things, we can take that into account. That's an reason, another reason why one of the recommendations is to consider whether or not to break this up into annual payments over time instead of one lump sum. And so that could be an outcome where we think it's appropriate to assess a fairly high penalty, but we also understand that the ability to pay may be challenging and counterproductive to actually fixing the violation, and so there, we'd have the opportunity to break that up into smaller payments um, annually over time. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Campbell? Um, just a quick comment and quick question. Um, I, I also found the percentages under demolition a little bit concerning, but what I think I hear you saying is um, the significant alterations or damage percentage, which is much more conservative at um, Ten percent would, in a way, get triggered if if a property were to be modified in a irresponsible way. 
Correct. They're, they're kind of two separate definitions and mm -hmm. thresholds. And you may have a project that the only work they've done is on the facade and it's not going to trigger the definition of demo, but it might trigger the definition of significant alteration or damage. And again, you trigger either one, you're in the same boat. Um, and so that's, that was the point we were making earlier is that the demo definition and threshold isn't kind of the all or nothing. Cause we also have this other threshold as well. And my question is, for folks that do modify significantly up to 10%, the repercussions are You mean if you, if you do cross this threshold? No, if you don't, but you if modify you 9%. Right. <laughs> so then you're just kind of in our standard enforcement okay. process. Okay. Um, and from a penalties perspective, our penalties there aren't designed to be punitive. They're designed to be used as leverage to get you to abate the violation, just to make it right. Um, so theoretically, if someone did a 9% situation, we go through the enforcement process. As long as they were engaging with us and working diligently to fix it, they would likely never be assessed penalties. Mm -hmm. They would be charged time and materials to cover staff time, but they wouldn't be assessed penalties. They would be assessed penalties if they weren't engaging with us and they weren't taking the appropriate actions. And for every day there, we could charge up to $1,000 a day per violation. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Nuggets Warren? Um, so for that 75% of existing internal structure or floor um, removal, um, it says unless that's the only way it's feasible to do seismic um, work. So if, if someone took, were to come in and take out the floor plates and the internal structure, um, They've already violated it, whether or not it was for the seismic or not, right? Um, so uh, ideally, they would have had that at the beginning and analyzed it and figured out yes and then get approvals. But once they've done it and not gotten approvals for it ahead of time, does this say that that's like still not a caveat? I'm so sorry, not a penalty? Right. If, so if just the internal so I understand what you're saying is that because we take this language basically from article and article article 10 11 it's in the existing language that's in the code is kind of designed for if you're coming in and getting authorizations for it mm -hmm. um, and oh, theoretically mm -hmm. this determination if that removal is structural work is necessary would be done before you got your permits but in the situation we're talking about you may have done this work prior to any such determination so it sounds like your question is could this determination be made kind of after the fact mm -hmm. um, in a way that um, doesn't give them a penalty. Right. We say, well, even though you did it ahead of time, we determined it would have been necessary and therefore you're not subject to these penalties. I mean, it'd still be a violation if we're doing work without permit, right? You mm -hmm. still be just being in, in the regular enforcement um, protocol. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, I think that's a good question to point out and for us to, to work through for the, for the commission to work through, because I think the language as it's proposed and as is in the code would leave open this kind of retroactive concept that you're mm -hmm. speaking of. Mm -hmm. If you don't think that's appropriate, then obviously that could be a change that you make um, to your proposed definition of demolition for Article 10 and 11 buildings to kind of take that consideration out because if you're doing it before you even go through that review process. It, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I would recommend not having that second portion for it you know, if it is feasible or if it's necessary for 
for seismic uh, work to be done because we don't know why they did it in the get-go. They've just violated that that um, um, limitation. Thank you. Motion to adopt. Commissioner Campbell, did you have other? Okay. Sorry, Commissioner Foley. Motion to adopt. I'll second that. Thank you, commissioners. If there's nothing further. Can, can I get clarification? Is that including the, the proposal that was just made? Correct. With, to uh, restrike that language? Correct. Okay. Thank you. Striking what language? I'm sorry. Strike the language from um, 1D and the recommendation for demolition, um, starting with unless until the end mm -hmm. of that sentence. And then the second all. Okay. And we'll get rid of the second all in 1B as well. Thank you. Isn't that, in the, didn't you say that was the co in the code? Well, the, the language is, we okay. took it from code, but it's not, Got the it. HPC's recommendation would not be amending code. Got it. Got it. Yes. Right. Very good commission. Wait, is it functional? Yeah, it's, it, it is functional. Okay. It's, it's not an error in the way it's written. It's probably written very, um, maybe unclear, but 1B is when a wall is left functioning as, like all the walls are left as functioning exterior walls. Mm -hmm. And then 1C is if it is removed and it functions as either an exterior or interior wall. So it's kind of, they're almost like three different calculations that you would have to go through, I guess four, including D. So one, you first do the calculation for A, which is 25% of the surface of any sort of siding on the front facade. B is all walls, so 50% of all walls it's function as exterior. So if they exceed the threshold, then they're like a demolition. C, if they are 25% of all walls that are either exterior, or external or internally functioning, then that's another threshold. So it's almost like you have to go through every single threshold to say, do you exceed that one threshold to be defined as a demolition under section 1005? Commissioner Nuggis Warren. So you're saying the second all is a necessary? It is. is necessary. Yes. Okay. Thank you. If I may. Um, this, this deputy city attorney Peter Millian, yes. just for clarification, it sounds like we're interpreting all external walls in this case to mean entirely external or completely external. Is that the correct way to to read that language? Entirely external. Entirely external. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. So is okay. There a so there is a motion that has been seconded. And, and if I understand correctly, do we need to revisit that motion? Well, if I, I'll read it into the record as best as I understand it, and you okay. correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Thank How's you. That? that would be lovely. Because I think the 1B has been resolved and is no longer right. part of the motion. Right. So the motion that was made and seconded was to strike um, in 1D, um, starting from unless to the end of the sentence otherwise adopting the resolution as is. Yes. Correct. With that, Commissioners, Commissioner Baldoff? Aye. Commissioner Campbell? Yes. 
Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagaswarn? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero. And we'll place this <laughs> on the final item on your final hearing <laughs> of 2023, number seven. Case number 2016-013156-SRV-04 for the SF survey update and draft findings. This is for your consideration to adopt, modify, or disapprove. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Maggie Smith, Planning Department staff, here to present on the San Francisco Citywide Cultural Resources Survey, SF Survey for short. So I'll first provide a brief overview for those watching who may be new to SF Survey and provide project updates based on the 2023 progress report included in your packets. I'll then pass it off to my project co-lead, Melanie Bishop, to share our first batch of draft findings, which are for the inner sunset neighborhood commercial district. An overview. SF survey is a multi-year effort supported by the San Francisco Planning Department to identify and document places and resources of cultural, historical, and architectural importance to San Francisco's diverse communities. This includes both tangible and intangible aspects of our cultural heritage, though we are presently focused on the tangible built environment today. The purpose of SS Survey is to, one, support community-led cultural empowerment efforts through partnerships, programming, and historic preservation protections and incentives, and two, standardize the historic resource review process for the California Environmental Quality Act, building permit applications, development projects, and area plans. SF Survey takes a collaborative approach to preservation planning where we see community as the cultural heritage guides that steer our process and findings and us at the city as regulatory process experts and guides to support community. Our methodology consists of various interconnected components, the citywide historic context statement, which informs our fieldwork research and evaluations, and result in our findings, and are all publicly shared in SF Cultural Heritage, our online platform for Powered by Arches. We also have the Intangible Cultural Heritage methodology under development, and an all-encompassing community engagement that is part of every aspect of SF Survey. For each phase, we follow an iterative workflow. Our first step is to gather existing information such as reviewing historic context statements, past documentation, and unadopted surveys. We then conduct field work. Back in the office, we complete research and evaluations by providing a baseline level of information for all properties. And we review for various associations with people, organizations, community stories, and context statements. Each property is evaluated under a minimum of two historic context statements, one architectural and one thematic. Additional information is filled out for properties identified as historic resources. 
staff assign a California Historical Resource Status Code, and all work is reviewed internally, then shared for public review, including here at HPC. Upon adoption, our last step is to update the property information map with the draft findings, ultimately changing properties from a Category B, unknown age eligible, to Category A, historic resource present, or Category C, no historic resource present. As you all know, we've been hard at work since 2020 with the development of the citywide historic context statement and community engagement. Our pilot began last year and we officially began fieldwork at the start of this year. We're excited to be bringing our first round of draft findings to you, a huge milestone for SF Survey. With over 120,000 properties to evaluate, we anticipate the project extending into 2027 and beyond. We are a small team of full and part-time staff supported by a large internal and external network, including our community partners, consultants, and you all. And now onto some updates. We have been utilizing and iterating on the community engagement framework initially developed in 2022. The framework serves as a roadmap for the engagement and collaboration strategies related to our project components and partnerships that guide and inform SF survey. It's an adaptive process, continually refined based on new information and evolving community needs. We've developed and worked to maintain a range of tools and materials to share SF survey information and seek input through a variety of methods. One of our latest tools is Community Stories, an online forum connected to SF cultural heritage that offers a place for the public to collaborate and contribute to SF survey by sharing stories, memories, oral histories, and documents like photographs that are important to the culture and history of their community. Paper versions of the form are also available in English, Spanish, Chinese, Tagalog, Japanese, and Russian. We've brought copies to pass out today, and uh, as well as prepaid envelopes for people to send back to us just over on the table. So throughout the year, SF Survey has maintained, formed, or begun to form invaluable partnerships with these listed organizations. The team and consultant in common have begun using memorandums of collaboration, MOCs, to formally support with the collaborative efforts of community partners, contributors, and staff. <coughs> Excuse me. We've attended, presented, and coordinated a number of community engagement events over the past year. As a result, we've begun utilizing a community input dashboard to identify global themes that help staff and communities track and advance areas of community concern and interest. We want to highlight the African American Historic Context Statement Open Forum at the George W. Davis Senior Center this past September, which was a significant milestone in this years-long effort with several months of community collaboration and multi-partnership. It exemplified our ideal of what we hope to see for future engagement events, providing helpful information and creating a real celebratory, uplifting atmosphere. We've adopted several thematic, geographic, and architectural historic context statements over the past few years, 
Most recently, architect, architecture and planning and preservation professionals, a collection of biographies in October. We're actively working with community on several cultural historic context statements. For the African American historic context statement, we're partnering to develop another open forum early next year. Our in-progress thematic and architectural historic context statements are split up between staff and consultants as shown here. With the adoption of the Neighborhood Commercial Buildings Historic Context Statement in 2022, existing unadopted Neighborhood Commercial Buildings Survey information, and considering the emphasis of future rezoning along commercial corridors on the west side of the city, our current focus for phase one is on neighborhood commercial districts. Future phase locations will be determined based on community readiness, historic context statement status, and staff capacity. As shown here, we first completed field work in Japantown and Fillmore, neighborhood commercial districts, then the Inner Sunset NCDs, and uh, we've most recently completed field work in the Richmond NCDs. Upcoming in 2024, staff alongside community partners and consultants will continue to develop and finalize additional context, subcontext, and theme documents as a part of the citywide historic context statement. We will continue to implement and refine our strategies with an emphasis on supporting community-led outcomes and continuing to cultivate those invaluable community partnerships. We aim to complete fieldwork and evaluations in the neighborhood commercial districts by the end of 2024. Neighborhood commercial districts for fieldwork upcoming include West Portal, Outer Sunset, Parkside, Bayview, and the Excelsior. Staff will complete engagement and draft findings for Richmond NCDs and continue community engagement with the Japantown and Fillmore communities to inform valuations. I'll now pass it off to Melanie. Thanks, Maggie, and good afternoon, commissioners, Melanie Bishop, department staff. Um, as Maggie mentioned, today we're excited to bring before you the first round of SF survey findings for the Inner Sunset Neighborhood Commercial District. And before I begin my presentation, I'd like to note that we've made some refinements to the content in your packet uh, to communicate information more accurately regarding property-specific findings. A memo with these clarifications was sent to you yesterday, and we've also provided a hard copy for today's hearing. And it's important to note, uh, no changes were made to final determinations of California historical resource status codes since the publication of the packet on November 29th. Rather, several properties that were ready to be adopted as draft finding and assigned a status code were wrongly categorized. So the survey area for these draft SF survey findings is the Inner Sunset Neighborhood Commercial District, which is defined by the planning code and zoning map of the city and county of San Francisco. It is located primarily along Irving Street between 5th Avenue and 19th Avenue, with sections along 9th Avenue and Judah Street. 
Documentation was collected from July to October of 2023 using SF Cultural Heritage or ARCHES and involved gathering baseline property information for all buildings located within the survey area that had not been previously surveyed and those that had not been previously assigned a California Historic Resource Status Code. And as Maggie mentioned, after further research, evaluation, and community engagement, each property was assigned a status code, and we now have a finding. So in total, we surveyed 211 properties within the neighborhood commercial district. Of those, we found 15 individually eligible properties and one historic district, which will be changed to category A historic resource present in our property information map. We also found 179 properties that were not eligible for listing individually or within a historic district. And these properties will be changed to category C, no historic resource in our property information map. And just to highlight again, each property was evaluated using relevant citywide historic context statement evaluative frameworks, and the evaluations incorporate information from these documents. The context statements that you see here on this slide were consulted throughout the process of drafting findings for the Inner Sunset Neighborhood Commercial District. So in the interest of time, I don't have time to go through all 200, but I'm going to walk you through some of our evaluations just so that you can get a sense of our survey methodology. And as I mentioned previously, the department determined that 15 buildings appear eligible for listing on the California Register as individual historic resources. So two examples of properties found to be individually eligible are 815 to 827 Irving Street and 807 Lincoln Way, which you can see on this slide. 815 to 827 Irving Street was found eligible under Criterion 1 Events and 3 Architecture for its association with the modernization of neighborhood storefronts in the inner sunset. While the property has been altered since its original construction date of 1912, likely in the 1930s, according to assessor photos. The storefront alterations have gained significance in their own right. The property utilizes Art Deco detailing and the incorporation of modern materials and finishes. And it is also the last location of the iconic chain of Rexall drugstores in San Francisco and still displays the classic orange and blue signage. Finally, the building's original owner was prominent Irish businessman Patrick Furlong. Therefore, this property may be evaluated for significance under the Irish American Historic Context Statement after its completion at a later date. The Little Shamrock, located at 807 Lincoln Way, was found eligible under Criterion 1 Events and 3 Architecture. Established in the 1890s by Antone and Julia Herzo to serve crowds arriving at Golden Gate Park's Midwinter Fair, the Little Shamrock is the Sunset District's oldest business and one of the oldest bars in San Francisco. The property appears to have been altered at least three times in 1908, 1912, and 1924, respectively. However, while the building does not retain its original appearance, these changes do, do not impact the building's appearance um, or significance and its ability to convey 
its significance as one of the oldest commercial buildings and businesses in the Sunset District. So two additional examples of properties that staff found eligible for listing are 1609 to 1611 Irving Street and 800 Irving Street. 1609 to 1611 Irving Street was found eligible under Criterion 3 for architecture as an intact example of a small-scale mixed-use Art Deco building, which is a relatively rare property type in San Francisco. The subject property retains a great deal of integrity and expresses its style through bold geometry and vertical emphasis, with notable elements including its upper story stepped arch bays, capped fluted columns with vertical speed lines, and intact residential and commercial entry. The Bank of America, located at 800 Irving Street, was also found eligible for listing on the California Register under Criterion 3 as an intact example of a bank built as part of the Bank of America's expansion of neighborhood bank branches in the 1960s. Built in 1963, this branch was designed by architecture firm of merit Worcester, Bernardi, and Emmons and utilizes elements of the mid-century modern style, which was a radical break from earlier designs of the time. The building retains integrity and is an exem excellent example of a mid-century bank building. And as I also mentioned previously, department staff also found one historic district within the Inner Sunset NCD, located at the intersection of Irving Street and 15th Avenue. The Irving and 15th Avenue Neighborhood Commercial District, Historic District, contains three properties, all of which contribute to the district. Constructed in 1926, the district represents the early development of Irving Street as a commercial corridor, and it's unified by the use of brick as a primary facade material and classical or Renaissance revival architectural detailing, including flat roof, cornice and modillions, and decorative cast plaster moldings. Um, and as I mentioned, um, there's an error on this slide, but it should be, we found 179 properties do not appear to qualify as eligible individual properties or contributors to districts. And we determined that these properties were ineligible for a variety of reasons, including level of alterations, as well as not meeting the period of significance or eligibility requirements outlined in relevant historic context statements. And you can see some examples on the slide here. And finally, there is a grouping of properties that we did not evaluate or are pending evaluation. And this is due to age eligibility requirements or completion of relevant historic context statements. There are 36 of these properties that may be associated with the below historic context statements on the slide that are not yet complete. And staff has flagged these properties for future evaluation once the relevant historic context statement is completed and adopted by this commission. The completion of these cultural historic context statements will help tell a more full story of properties across San Francisco. Okay, so what does this all mean through the lens of existing policy? Properties found to be category A historic resource present will require more regulatory protection and may be eligible for local landmarking. 
Category A properties may also be eligible for historic incentives and use of the California Historical Building Code. Category C properties, though, while not considered historic resources under CEQA, may still be eligible for the Legacy Business Registry and other cultural heritage programs. And we are able to bring these findings before you today after conducting community engagement. Um, as Maggie touched on previously, informational postcards were mailed to all property owners and occupants within the Inner Sunset NCD ahead of conducting field work and evaluations. We held a variety of events and meetings seen on this slide and spoke with neighbors while out in the field. And finally, 20-day mailed and emailed notification was sent to all property owners and occupants ahead of today's hearing. Even after adoption, we'll continue to take comment on these findings from community members. And if new information is provided regarding a specific property, we may revise that finding. Just to highlight the feedback that we received, uh, during community engagement, the feedback that we heard covered a wide variety of themes. And we are tracking this feedback and will continue to address these items as staff capacity allows through the life of the project. I also want to note, importantly, that we're working to develop a partnership with SF Heritage to review our draft findings on an ongoing basis. And we've received comment from SF Heritage on several properties included in today's findings, and their comments have been incorporated. So in conclusion, we are really excited to be before you today as this is a huge milestone for the project. We're presenting today's findings summarized here with a recommendation for adoption. And this concludes our presentation and we're happy to answer any additional questions. So thank you. Thank you. All good work. Very good. With that, we should take public comment. Members of the public, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Good afternoon. Woody LeBounty from San Francisco Heritage. Uh, Jonas, I just got a couple of texts that people were having trouble with the phone system. I don't know if it's their trouble or the city's trouble, but I just wanted to call your attention to that. Okay. Um, I want to offer my thanks to Melanie, Maggie, and the whole survey team for taking the time to work closely with San Francisco Heritage on this first set of findings for adoption. We had a lot of questions on evaluation um, and the methodology, and I think we had fruitful and productive conversations um, over the last few weeks. Uh, we asked that a couple of the properties be held back from this batch for further review and evaluation pending the approval of some of those context statements, and uh, they very kindly complied to do that. Um, we all know this is a very important project, uh, long conceived and developed, and we want it to be a success and appreciate being heard and being part of this process. Uh, I think an even more difficult job is ahead, which is namely explaining to the public and the property owners what determination of a historic resource means uh, for them, especially in the current environment with the housing element and the housing production legislation coming forward. So I look forward to that and Heritage will try to help with that process. Um, and identifying, for example, a small historic district is one thing, but um, you know, 
getting to designation of that district and getting some real protections for it is another process that is, uh, that needs to be planned for. And that's all I guess I would say about that. But really I wanna thank planning and the whole survey team for being open and accessible and working with us closely on this. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, if there are no other members of the public in the chambers coming forward, let's take our remote callers. Oh, good afternoon. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. we can. Great, great. It's Bridget Maley. Um, I had my hand up for the last thing, but I think I might have done something wrong. So anyway, I'm glad you got me this time. Um, uh, thanks for all of this, the great information. This is a great milestone uh, in working towards surveying the city. Um, I'm calling in to just echo the comments uh, of Mr. Labounty and Heritage to say that um, uh, I have walked to this area uh, and, I, and I'm glad to hear that there's some uh, rethinking that might occur with several of the properties um, in the survey area. Um, with regard to methodology and the community outreach, I would be curious to know um, with regard to the community stories, um, were there specific community stories that were submitted that related to Irving Street? Um, was there a specific meeting? Um, I think I, the slide went by a little fast. I think it said there was a specific meeting with the merchants along Irving Street, but I'd be curious for clarification on that. Um, and then just kind of how all of this relates to um, uh, the upzoning that's about to happen in a lot of these neighborhood commercial corridors. I mean, Irving Street is going to be upzoned to 85 feet. That's eight stories. How does this information get folded into planning um, for um, the upzoning of these uh, historic commercial corridors? Um, uh, you know, there's other co commercial corridors that we need to survey Clement, Balboa, Union, Polk, Chestnut, all of these commercial corridors are upzoned for six to eight stories. Um, so I, I just hope that the commission will um, will ask some pointed questions about how this information is going to get folded into decision making about upzoning. Um, these historic neighborhood commercial corridors are a deep part of our city's fabric and they're home to many of our small unique businesses. And I'll just remind you that we limit formula retail in neighborhood commercial zones. So what small business is going to be able to afford rent in the base of an eight story market rate building? Um, so in summary, please look more carefully at this Irving Street corridor, uh, as Heritage has pointed out, and please prioritize the survey of additional neighborhood corridors, uh, including consideration of more extensive historic districts that would protect these resources. I'll also just remind you that Shane Watson and I have fully documented Ocean Avenue, um, and that you know if there's a rush to get these in, you so you've got all the Ocean Avenue information that you need. Thank you so much. Okay, last call for public comment. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed. And this matter is now before you. Thank you. Commissioner Vergara. Uh, I just uh, wanted to say to, to Ms. Smith and Ms. Bishop, uh, the field work and research that you do uh, on projects like this is just amazing. You and your colleagues, uh, the city is really fortunate to have caring and committed public servants like you. 
And uh, I hope that uh, despite the, um, the budget constraints that the city's dealing with, that you'll be able to continue that, uh, that excellent work you do. And I only wish the fire state, the uh, gas station at 16th and Irving had held on a little longer so it could have been part of this survey. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Foley. I just want to uh, second Commissioner Vergar's marks. Thank you very much for those. Thank you. Commissioner Baldoff. Yes, I, I, I agree. It's, it's an amazing... Commissioner Baldoff, you need to... It, it, it's an amazing amount of work, and I, I concur with all of those comments. And I particularly want to commend you for including the Bank of America branch. I, I think that um, too often um, modern buildings aren't given their due, and I think the texture of the street having its mix of buildings is, is particularly powerful in, in the character of the street. And it brings me to my question about the historic district. I, for me, the historic district is the least compelling thing that you've presented. And I'm nervous about it because I want all of San Francisco to buy into this. And I'm nervous that our first historic district in a commercial zone is not compelling in my mind. I, I, I would not personally have thought to nominate it as a historic district. So maybe you can give a little more of your thinking because it's strange, oh, that two of the buildings were associated with a the movie theater that's gone. I mean, I, I don't, why this is so compelling, I'd like you to elaborate on. Sure, um, thank you for that question, Melanie Bishop, department staff. Um, so a couple things, I think. Um, I think when we were out in the field, we were struck by those three buildings in particular because of their brick construction um, and how relatively rare that is on the west side, but maybe in most neighborhoods of San Francisco, not all, but most. Um, and I think when we saw that grouping together, while it has been pretty altered, I think we would consider those buildings types relatively rare within the neighborhood commercial districts. Um, if they are extant, I think they are very altered. So that's something we have to think about. Um, and I think our methodology towards creating historic districts has changed over the last several years. Um, and consultants can probably speak to this too, but um, I think we're trying to create smaller historic districts that are more focused around um, a very kind of direct period of significance where all the buildings relate very clearly to each other. Uh, I think in the, in the past and currently a lot of our existing um, California Register el eligible districts are relatively large and the properties within those districts have not been assigned contributing or non-contributing status. Um, so I think with the survey, we're trying to create smaller, more defensible historic districts. Um, and acknowledging that the buildings in this one have been pretty altered, we do feel like it's a significant example of early 20th century commercial construction on, on the west side where we don't have a lot of representation for historic resources. Thank you. Commissioner Campbell? 
I had a similar question about the district, and I I wondered, um, is it just more than one building? Would we would we consider looking at the three buildings as resources versus looking at it as a district? And what would get triggered, like if I owned the building next to these, am I out of that district or am I considered part of it? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, that actually brings up a point that I forgot to mention. So I think um, another point for making this a historic district is often the the threshold of integrity for individual buildings, nominating or listing something individually on the California Register is pretty high. Um, and we felt that looking at these individually with blinders on just solely at each single property because of the level of alteration we felt like it'd be really hard to argue to list each one individually. When we're creating a small historic district, I think there's um, a bit more wiggle room when it comes to integrity. And so that's kind of another reason why we took that approach is maybe we don't feel like listing each of these individually is defensible, but if we can list them together, there's clearly a relation. They were developed around the same time by the same person. That argument's a little bit stronger, I think. And um, to your point about kind of what happens with properties next to the district, another kind of pro that these are all in one line conveniently next to each other is that um, only properties within that district will be kind of required to follow historic preservation standards when it comes to renovating or maintaining their building. Um, if there was a property within that boundary that maybe didn't contribute to the historic district, they would be required to follow those same set of standards relatively. Um, but because this is a small district and we're not including any surrounding properties, that makes it a bit cleaner and better for other property owners. Um, they're not having to adhere to this historic district, it's really just the three properties that are like most contributing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, just to add on that, Commissioner, so as we look at other either non-contributing properties that are within the district boundaries, um, we would look for relationships between the new and the old, but since we don't have any kind of strict adopted standards currently guiding our districts, we would only look at it in the sake of a CEQA context currently. So as we, that's one of our work plan goals for next year is to start looking at more um, adopted standards basically for design and looking at our um, new and existing properties. So. Thank you, Commissioner Nagas Warren. Um, you know, going off of what Commissioner Campbell was also talking about and the public comment, um, I'm interested in knowing uh, that you, you've identified um, Category C buildings, which are not contributing or not individually significant. Um, so, and then you have these other buildings that are eligible, eligible to the California Register. And, you know, in preservation, we often evaluate and determine something is eligible to the California Register. But now it's become more critical to understand um, listing is, is, is becoming more important, um, listing on the California Register because of the housing element um, and how that affects um, 
the buildings in that area. And the, the uh, explanation for um, Commissioner Campbell's question was interesting in that the, you know, the buildings that are within a district um, would adhere to a certain standard and the adjacent buildings may not adhere to that standard. So it means that, you know, it opens a door to, you know, the 80 foot tall, um, you know, housing, you know, element uh, or the housing um, project. Thank you. Um, and I, I think it would be interesting to know how we approach um, listing on the California Register if we pursue that, but also the zoning issue of this is a commercial corridor. What, how are we going to zone this in terms of housing? Um, is it going to be zoned to be allow, allowing housing to go on these on these corridors, or is the housing happening behind these corridors? Um, so I think we need to start to understand mm -hmm. what, what what is happening in these areas and how to. Um, categorize them as listed or eligible and how, how they're zoned. Um, I don't know if you have any input on how that could happen. Yeah, I think I'll happily address this since it's probably related to a future hearing that you'll probably have on the rezoning effort. Um, you know, right now what the survey is doing is presenting information out to the public, out to our decision makers with regard to what exists in our built landscape you know we are pretty specific that the survey is about information and making sure we understand our historic resources things like designation and things like the rezoning um, ultimately need to be made by by others right like i think specifically for designation you know and pursuing landmarking and other forms of protections we do want to make sure that the community is well heard in that voice, right? And especially when we're looking at, for example, state and federal listing, owner consent is typically required in those instances um, in a lot of cases. So that becomes a big factor in terms of the level of outreach you do with the property owners. Um, you know, as we do look at the rezoning efforts, the a lot of these corridors have been identified. The housing element clearly did show that you know the city plans to meet our housing goals this way and so it's one of these many competing goods that the city has that we want to make sure that people are very aware of what is out there and then make informed decisions and you know provide for protections accordingly but also provide for growth so um, and one follow-up question um to um one of the public comments uh was you know how are we dealing with the other corridors that may not be in this survey group. Um, can you give some background on the priorities? Sure. Uh, so I think one of the slides that Maggie had kind of noted where we're going to next for neighborhood commercial districts. Uh, and I, I do want to note that one of the planned areas is Ocean Avenue. We know that Bridget Maley has prepared documentation at Shane Watson. Uh, so that would be a priority for us to move forward because we do have that um, existing documentation that we just need to flesh out a bit more. Uh, but if I could get the slides again. 
Okay, so on this slide here under field work, that is kind of the order of our next priorities. So um, understanding that the west side is going to be where most of the burden is carried for upzoning, that's where we're prioritizing, and then we'll kind of continue south and to the east, um, incorporating in our priority equity geographies. Would you say some of the other areas that Ms. Maley mentioned, like Union Street, um, Fillmore Street, are they well documented um, in terms of categories of buildings? Yeah. Fillmore. Oh, well. So um, I know that there have been a fair amount of uh, historic resource evaluation responses there, so that would definitely guide our work. But we also, what we're using for the basis of our work is a draft survey that was conducted by department staff, I think, in 2016. So we do have a basis of documentation for all of these districts already. Um, given the time that has passed, though, we are just going back and documenting any alterations that have occurred. But a lot of the research and kind of neighborhood context is already there for us, which is nice. Um, and the uh, one other thing I wanted to mention um, was the, you know, the properties within the areas that you're surveying are uh, going to be documented as category A and C and, you know, some intermittent B um, buildings that haven't been evaluated. Um, and other um, areas of the city would still continue to do the historic resources review um, to determine whether they are A or C category buildings. Um, so, yeah. Yes, that's correct. And the idea is once we finish with surveying the neighborhood commercial districts, uh, we'll then look at phasing for the residential areas of the city. But until then, that process will continue kind of concurrently. Thank you. Commissioner Baldoff? Yeah, I, I want to go back or just continue on this conversation around the neighborhood commercial district because the whole conversation about what are we going to do with the housing element and everything, I find it very interesting that one of these three buildings actually does have two stories of housing on it. It's one of the interruptions in scale. and. I wouldn't personally mind seeing housing above the other two brick buildings and creating a cohesive massing on both sides of the street there. And I'm nervous that we're making these two other brick buildings um, at the highest level of, of um, well, within the neighborhood we are. We're saying that this is a... a, a a district, right? I mean, they can't. I mean, could could you put multiple levels of housing on these buildings? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, you could. <laughs> this is the short answer. Yeah. yeah. So keep in mind, like what we're doing is providing for whether or not a historic resource exists on a site. Any future owner or property owner can develop their property accordingly, understanding that that is the existing context, and then work through our existing processes accordingly with, with those facts. So, um, you know, the survey doesn't specifically say you can't demolish anything, doesn't say that, you know, anything is specifically protected. We give, you know, kind of opportunity in terms of the story that has been told here and kind of un uncovering and recognizing the histories that have occurred on the site. Thank you. 
Um, I would also like to echo everybody's support and appreciation of your hard work and your personal efforts to really encourage community. Um, and as you probably noticed or probably heard from the voices uh, of the owners and of the residents in the sunset, it's changing. It's gone from uh, a community that has had residents there for many generations and decades to a new constituency. And I'm just hoping that as that transition happens that you're able to collect those stories because those are really important stories. And those were uh, very challenging times for a lot of people who were the first maybe of their family or generation to move into those neighborhoods. So uh, I encourage um, people as they're leaving their homes or selling their homes and selling it off to a new family or a new business to not dump all their wonderful memorabilia and because that's that's part of the sunset's history it's the sunset in the richmond in particular that i've seen probably a lot more change than other places in terms of just generations generations who've been there and now we're still, we're just seeing a new uh, a new community coming around. So thank you very much. Any other comments or questions from the commission? Motion to adopt. Second. Commissioner Vergara, did you have a question or comment? I was going to make the motion oh, to okay. adopt. Thank you. There's nothing further, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to adopt the uh, survey on that motion. Commissioner Baldoff. Aye. Commissioner Campbell. Yes. Commissioner Vergara? Yes. Commissioner Foley? Aye. Commissioner Nagasworn? Yes. And Commission President Matsuda? Yes. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously 6 and, to And zero. I'd like to conclude our Historic Preservation Commission meeting today in memory and of great, great appreciation um, to Gigi Platt, who was a strong and fearless advocate of historic and cultural preservation in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays.